by turning to uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, again, just to review a promise in Scripture. Before we get into the, uh, the lesson itself, see if we can uh, go through this uh, one more time and look at uh, the rationale that's built into this great promise area. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Just a housekeeping matter. Um, we're going to have no class next week or the next week. So for two weeks, then the, first, the next class will be the Thursday night right after New Year's. And I'll have a whole section uh, on uh, Reformed theology and dispensational theology. That's come up several times in questions. And I want to uh, hand Appendix A, which will fit with this pamphlet that we're building here, and there'll be a review of just what we're talking about as far as when someone says is a reformed theologian or a dispensational theologian, what what are they talking about? Because we want to clarify things. Uh, those two schools of thought have two uh, different views uh, on the, the role and the nature of the church. So we want to be clear about that. And I'll, I'll be referring to it, so I want to be sure that everyone understands the terminology. And you should understand the terminology anyway because um, you can walk into a Christian bookstore and you'll you peruse the titles and you'll see samples from both schools in there mixed. And a lot of people will come to a conclusion, they'll wonder why we got a conflict here when it looks like it's the same thing. Well, it's not really the same thing. <clears throat> okay, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Just to review and, and pull out some of the, uh, the, the conflict between the content of this promise and the content of the world system that opposes this promise in the battle for faith. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Obviously, the crux of this promise in verse 7 is the incomprehensibility of God. And that goes back to this diagram that we've shown time and time again that God... Um, let's see how I turn this on. <laughs> forgot. Let's see. Okay. Um, I'll be through my cough drop here in a little bit. Then you can understand what I'm saying. Okay. We said, um, <clears throat> I think I better just move it up close. Okay, let's see. There. <clears throat> we said again and again that in God's plan, in God's omniscience, things fit together. In our finite grasp of things, things don't fit together. And the difference between this and this is omniscience, finite knowledge. And it's this that Paul's talking about when, he, he, when we have situation to make a promise known or to make our request known, the peace of God which passes comprehension and we read that too fast sometimes and don't grab what the verse is really saying. What is a peace that is incomprehensible? You might ask that. How can you rationally talk about something that cannot be comprehended? And the answer is because we can rationally talk about the triune creator, we can say there's the creator-creature distinction, we can say that this God, this creator and savior and redeemer has a perfect plan. And that's a rational statement. He is omniscient. We can understand what we're saying when we say God is omniscient. We can also say, understand what we're saying when we say we know he loves us. We have no trouble perceiving what we're saying in those two statements. But those two statements do not say that we know, in this case, we know how all things are going to work out. So the peace that is in verse 7 derives 
from a knowledge of the Creator, not a knowledge of what He is doing in a particular situation. And there's a, there's a difference there. We don't know what He's doing in particular situations all the time, most of the time. But the peace that passes understanding is not contingent, is not dependent upon us knowing all the details. It is sufficient to handle some of the chaos by looking up and realizing, though this is out of our sight, we have pieces down here and we know they fit together. Just like if you had a jigsaw puzzle, you know that those pieces fit together. You might not exactly see how, but you have the confidence they do. They wouldn't have come in the package. So it's a very similar thing in these pieces that we have, these grasps, fragments, that they do fit together, but we don't know exactly how. And we can get the piece then without having to comprehend all the details. Okay? Now let's reverse it. Remember we said there's three things, the faith rest drill. You pick up a fragment of scripture, you think about its rationale, its consistency, its theological basis, and then you have closure. You want to be able to close out a competing worldview that would attack that promise. Now, if you think about this promise where it says the peace of God passes all understanding, if you didn't operate on that frame of reference, what would you say? You'd have to say that I can't get peace unless it is comprehensible, right? In other words, if I am an autonomous creature and I have finite resources and I can only see certain things, the only way I can have peace is to have a fully conceived rational plan. And if I can't have a plan that is comprehensible to me, I don't have any peace. And this is what leads to fantasies. This is what leads to pseudo-plans. This is what leads to faith that the government is going to be your savior. The idea that man can plan, that man can plan out all these things. You often hear it said, well, if the government doesn't do it, who's going to? Well, I could name three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The point is that the government is not a messiah. And making it a messiah is just a manifestation of the antithesis of verse 7. That if you, you can read verse 7 two ways. The way it reads in the text is, the peace of God that passes all understanding. The opposite to that is the peace of man that requires comfort, understanding. And the peace of man require, demands that man be able to see the whole thing. Well, he can't see the whole thing. So what does he do? He fantasizes that he can see the whole thing. And he manufactures a peace. But that peace is never secure. It can be fragmented in 30 minutes by the next crisis that hits. So there is no peace, as Isaiah said, there is no peace for the wicked because there is no basis for the peace of the wicked. All they have is pieces. <clears throat> All right, let's uh, bow for a word of prayer as we um, come to a lesson tonight. <clears throat> Father, we thank you once again for our salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. That were it not for grace, that were it not for his perfect life, were it not for his perfect application of the filling of the Spirit, the claiming of God's promises, the mission to complete our salvation would never have been done. And we're thankful that tonight we can have confidence and have peace because we know that he, his work is finished and that he has ascended and is now seated at your right hand. We ask in his name that he send his spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds to the text that the Holy Spirit has, has written and has preserved over the centuries. Amen. If you'll turn and you notice to page 19, we're reviewing this angelic conflict because it's part of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. It's required to understand what Jesus Christ has accomplished, better way of saying it. We have said that to understand the work of Christ, we have to understand the fact that God saves and judges. So we call that judgment salvation. 
We have two examples scripturally of judgment salvation. One example, of course, is the flood. The second example is the exodus. And these two mirror the final example, which we're studying, which is the finished work of Christ. We said that there are certain features to the way, a pattern that always exists in the way that God judges and saves. First of all, he doesn't save unless he judges. And he doesn't judge without saving. Those two functions of God go together. And the first aspect is that there is always grace before judgment. And in the church age, the whole church age is a period of grace before judgment, before the second return of Christ and the cutoff of grace. So you have this period of, of, of grace before judgment. Then we said the second feature is that God always perfectly discriminates between the believers and unbelievers. He did it at the flood. He did it at the exodus. And those are two good examples because it's very sharp, the distinction between there was a sharp distinction between the firstborn without blood on the door who died and the firstborn who did not die who had blood on the door. It was a simple thing. It wasn't related to personality. It wasn't related to intelligence. It was related to the idea of whether they believed in the word of God or not. That was the discriminator. And God discriminates. And man always hates discrimination. But God always uses discrimination because discrimination implies there exists a standard. And all law discriminates. Law sets up the boundary of discrimination. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that discriminates. All other religions outside of the God's word, outside of the Bible, all religions are ultimately based on the merits of man. Man trying to save himself. Operation Bootstrap. There is only one religion that is completely grace-dependent. The bloody substitutionary atonement. Islam doesn't have it, Judaism doesn't have it, and no other religion has it. Only biblical Christianity has a substitutionary blood atonement. Why? Because only Christianity has a God of absolute justice. All other religions ultimately compromise the justice and holiness of God by a program of arbitrary forgiveness based on some relative merit system. So because God insists upon his justice, there's always perfect discrimination as to whether people believe or reject the salvation package in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, going along with that, there is only one way of salvation. There was only one way of deliverance from the flood. There's only one way of deliverance in the exodus. And there's only one way of deliverance, and that's, uh, that's with the finished work of Christ. Then we said that whenever God judges, because God is the creator and we're the creature, we're not all the only creatures, God judges man and God judges nature. So we're on this area of nature linking angelic beings as part of nature and therefore subject to the judgment. And therefore, their status changes once the Lord Jesus Christ's work is finished and he ascends and sits at the Father's right hand. Something changes. And we want to grab hold of that change because that's the basis of the church age. Something has changed as a result of the ascent and session of Christ. Now, in the notes, the second to the last paragraph on page 19, I, we, we went through some of these verses last time on the struggle in the unseen realm. That not only is the ground cursed, not only is the ground resist man, but the angelic beings that occupy the rest of creation themselves are in conflict. There's a spiritual war going on in the unseen dimension. And foolish is the person who thinks that evil is something that's just confined to humankind. Evil is not just confined to humankind. Evil is embedded in the environment. And I emphasize this because we're going to get into eschatology, and we already covered it three, two, two years ago when we talked about premillennialism versus postmillennialism. What is it about premillennialism that stresses the environment? You can't have the kingdom of God unless the environment is clean. And you've got to have an environmental cleansing 
in the physical environment, in the spiritual environment, before you can have the kingdom of God. It seems plain. But what happens, all the programs outside of premillennialism always want to bring in God's kingdom in some abbreviated version, either politically or some other way. That's not sufficient because it doesn't deal with the background forces of evil. So we're looking at these background forces preparatory to understanding how Christ's finished work changes and advances that conflict. And in that paragraph, I list several verses going through about Satan's program includes. And we want to look at a section of that tonight. <coughs> Satan's program includes blocking evangelism. The reason why Satan blocks evangelism is because he want, doesn't want people to be saved. Every time someone is saved, that's a defection that changes the vote count. It is very significant. This is why every revival in history has always been followed by a satanic counter-revival. Protestant Reformation stressed the finished work of Christ on the cross. What did the Roman Catholic Church do? Started the counter-reformation in which they attacked Protestantism. And very viciously so. So you had the Reformation and then you had the counter-reformation. In America, you had the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century. And what followed that? All the cults. Every bizarre cult you can think of started in America right around 1840 to 1860. For 34 years, what do we have? We had the Mormons start. We had the Jehovah's Witnesses start. We had the Seventh-day Adventists start. We had all kinds of things start. Why did, it, why did you have all those start in such a small time? We haven't had so many religions start in such a short time since 586 B.C. when Israel was thrown out of the land and seven world religions started within 50 years of that day. There are these times and periods of history that just spawn all kinds of stuff. And America was a breeding ground of this. Why did our country produce such theological sleaze? Because... Prior to that, the Great Awakening had happened, I believe, and there were too many people getting saved. So Satan had to cut off that progress of the gospel because remember, for every person who trusts in Jesus Christ, that advances the historical clock. The clock, up to the time of Christ, you can think of it this way, there's a clock, and the hands on the clock are moving and they time history. Well, every time someone trusts in Christ, every time there's a spiritual victory, the hands move. Now, what are you going to see when you see a revival? The hands moving fast because there's thousands of people coming to know the Lord. Well, what does this do? This speeds up time. If time is sped up in the spiritual realm, what does that mean? If, if, you're, if you're Satan and you're, you know that like the demon said to Jesus when the, Jesus was going to heal him, I remember the demon's reply, why do you tor torment us before the time? The demons know where the end is. Why do you torment us before our time? In other words, we, we don't want history to end. Satan is in a staving off process, trying to stop, trying to slow history down so he doesn't get down at that end. And so, whenever you have a spiritual advance, you're speeding history up. And he doesn't want history to be sped up because that, that shortens his time. So he'll fight viciously and powerfully and seductively and brilliantly to slow history down. So, these are the ways he does it. One way is blocking evangelism. Another way... That's Matthew 13, for you want illustrations, many illustrations, but that's one. Persecuting believers on the earth. That's another way. When Satan cannot deceive and have his way that way, he's like a big bully. He'll have to resort to violence. Whenever the church is violently persecuted, as it is in is Somalia, Sudan, rather, now, China, uh, Egypt, Wherever the church is being attacked, you can chalk it up to the fact that the satanic forces feel somehow threatened by the gospel. 
and the program of deception hasn't worked. The program of intimidation hasn't worked. So therefore, they have to turn the heat up now and we're going to get physical. We're going to get violent about it. But whether it's deception, whether it's intimidation, whether it's outright persecution, it's always the same, trying to slow down the development of the body of Christ. So that's the second way. Physical violence. And that goes on today. And interestingly, there's a difference between Satan using intimidation and Satan using physical violence. Because when he uses intimidation, it can be intellectual intimidation, it can just be social, imita uh, int um, social intimidation. But when it gets physical, what happens is, and the reason why it happens, is because you have people who are normal, common, everyday Christians. You know, I mean, these, these humble people that just will not bow their knee to Caesar. They're going to bow only to Jesus Christ, period. And those are the kind of people that are thrown in the Colosseum. And uh, people watched them get eaten by lions. Those are the people... It wasn't that they were big, powerful, strong people. Spiritually they were, but they were humble people who knew that Christ was above Caesar. And that is offensive. And if Satan can't have his way, because if someone's going to be that stubborn about it and risk their life for Jesus Christ over against all this intimidation, what, what other tool does Satan have except trying to physically eliminate them? And he tries that for a while. And then when he gets that, and then he, he relearns the lesson that the church grows in the blood of the martyrs like that Chinese guy that Cal Thomas interviewed from China, a little old fellow in his 70s, thrown in jail, taken out of jail, thrown in jail, beat up, and he still has a church uh, that uh, is in some Chinese city. It's unregistered, still has his classes, second floor of this little old building. And Cal Thomas asked him, well, how is it that the authorities are letting you loose? I mean, they've letting you out of jail. After all these years, they let this 70-some-odd-year guy get out of jail. And he smiles and he says, that's because when they put me in jail, the church grows faster. And they, they just don't know what to do with this guy. I mean, here is the, one of the most powerful regimes on earth, in the most populous country on earth, and they can't deal with a 70-year-old man. One man who believes in Jesus Christ. He creates all kinds of problems for them. The bureaucrats have meetings. They have all kinds of planning sessions. They throw him in jail and that doesn't work. They let him out of jail and that doesn't work. They don't know what to do with this guy. Why? Because it's the battle of the Spirit of God against the Spirit of this world. There's more to it than just human beings involved. And that's the big idea here. So blocking evangelism, persecuting believers violently on earth, Accusing them in heaven. And that's the one we want to look at tonight. Because this is not empirically perceived, but it goes on. And it's a source of continual conflict in heaven. So we're going to look at Job as an illustration. And from these three illustrations, you see there's three verses there, Job 1 to 2. It shouldn't be Job 12. It should be Job 1 to 2. Zechariah 3, 1 and Revelation 12, 10. And I think I'm going to work backwards for this, let's go to Revelation 12.10 first, and then we'll come back to Job because there's more content there. This is a theme or a method that Satan uses to attack believers. Now, there's something to tie in and get the big picture here, what's going on, to get a handle on it, make sense of what happens in life. You remember that when we talked about um, evil and talked about suffering, we showed a chart. We didn't show a chart when we first taught it. This is a newer one. And we said that in handling suffering and handling the problem of evil, we have some tools. And we, we've gone over this a number of times. The create-a-creature distinction, the fact is that the center of our faith is that the judge of all the earth shall do right. Okay? Now, we had nine rationales to rest in. 
And I want to review those rationales for a moment because it's one of those rationales comes right here. <clears throat> Let's review. There's two categories of rationales. Let's get this up on the gizmo here. There's two, two categories of rationales for suffering. One is what we call suffering that is directly caused and suffering that is indirect. The suffering that is directly caused is simpler to see why that happens. The fall of Adam. Verse, Genesis 2.17. So category one, Genesis 2.17. The day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. God has his rules, God has his laws, cause, effect, act, consequence of act. So that's simple to see. And it's not simple to experience, it's simple to see. <clears throat> the day that you eat thereof, you die. Second, true of believers and unbelievers. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. So there's another verse. Category 2 type suffering. That's a suffering that's a Christian who disobeys or a non-Christian that just sins and reaps the results of sin. This country, economically, is in, in the hole by billions because of sin. I've suggested more than once that certain Christians who are experts in economics and sociology, I don't understand why somebody hasn't done this. I can't believe that somebody at this late date in our country's history hasn't done something that would take less than a month to assemble. And that is research how much in dollars the following lifestyles cause. Divorce. That includes the consequences on children. That includes the fighting. That includes the legal fees. That includes setting up two households in competition where you had one before, now you have to have double assets. Just think of that. The economic fallout of broken homes. Let's say, let's add to that the economic consequences of alcohol and drugs. Not just in crime to support the habits. That's a big bill. And you can add in there all the costs for jails. You can add into that all the attempts at rehabilitation. You can add into that the welfare that goes to pay the kids who grew up in the homes with the parents in jail because the parent isn't here now to end. So the taxpayers wind up paying for jail and we wind up paying for welfare over here because we have a stupid system that doesn't connect the two together. We think jail's going to solve everything. We have, for add to that, the health care fallout from those lifestyles. And you can just add on and add on and add on. Just think of this. We're talking billions, if not trillions of dollars, draining right at the bottom of the economy. It's like pouring water in your bathtub and you're pulling the plug all the time. You wonder why the water never comes up. Because it's all going down the drain. And so there's a price for Category 2 suffering. And it ought to be made clear, and it seems like somebody could create the argument from sheer economic statistics. Category 3 suffering. Same kind of category two. Category two looks at the individual. Category three is more like what I just said. Good example of that is in Acts 17, verses 26 through 27, because right in there God adjusts national boundaries according to whether people are seeking God or not. One of the axioms of history that where you have societies that finally damn themselves because they get so negative to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they become so obstructive to the gospel that finally God says, that's it, grace is over for that group, because I want to show grace to the people that have to live there. I believe that's an explanation for what years and years ago a famous CBS commentator, Lowell Thomas, was asked after World War II, I believe, to go visit Tibet and visit the Dalai Lama in Tibet. And it was because the Tibetans were threatened with communist Chinese takeover. And they wanted to make some overtures to the West, hoping that their case would be met. Well, it turns out that one of the 
things that happened when the communists took over Tibet, everybody was moaning and groaning, it's a horrible thing, and we know, obviously, didn't like communism to advance. But Tibet was under the control of demonic monks, the famous red-hooded monks of Tibet. These guys were so demonic they could levitate themselves and objects and all kinds of stuff. And the whole society had become uh, enmeshed in this demonism. Well, the communists marched in, and everywhere communism went, they put radios, because that's how they maintain communication and indoctrination. So they brought radios to Tibet, and guess what happened? Trans World Radio and the Christians got together and beamed right, rode right in on the frequencies. And the gospel went into Tibet like it never had done before. So Acts 17, 26, and 27 is category three type suffering. God opens up closed societies when they get too closed to the gospel. And it can be war, it can be a disaster, it can be an earthquake, it can be whatever. Maybe global warming, flood all the eastern seaboard, get rid of all the corruption on the east and west coast. Acts 17, 26, and 27 then, category 4 type suffering. Category, category 3. Category 4 type suffering is the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41. So here, in this verse, 25, 41, that verse says that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. Men get there almost as a secondary thing. The primary reason for the lake of fire isn't for the human race, it's for the devil and his angels. Men get there because they agree with Satan. So, want to agree? Live with him forever. So that's, these are four categories of suffering that are direct, meaning you can see cause-effect. Now the other five are not so obvious, and these are harder to see. And you have to have spiritual eyes to see these. Anybody can see the first four. Category five is suffering because God is calling you to the gospel. And we, you can probably, this one, we could all give testimonies to how that happens in our family unit. But a good example, if you want a verse for this, is Acts 16.27, the jailer. His jail got busted open. 16.27. And he was a very upset man. And that's the man who asked how to be saved. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So here we have a case where a man was brought into a suffering situation to wake him up to the gospel. It was nothing that he had done. He wasn't suffering his jail being destroyed because of something he personally did. He's suffering because God is interfering and intervening in his life to bring him to God. So, category five suffering is a mysterious thing that happens apparently in, with a surprise. It's not forecast. It's not something that's related to something somebody's done. It just happens. Category six is to stimulate spiritual growth. And we gave a verse from Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Now, why is that? That may not be related to anything that you've done. It may come out of the clear blue, utterly unrelated. That's why it's so hard to see. That's why we call it indirect. It's just because, for some reason, God sees something in our soul that he wants to unkink. And, you know, at 11.32, some night, it happens. And it doesn't appear related to what you did this previous morning, the previous week, the previous month, or the previous year. It just happens. So that is a nudge to spiritual growth, category six. Category seven is as a witness to unbelievers. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, he says that this happened that it may be an example to them who will, future tense, believe. So here something happens as a testimony. Suffering can occur in a life utterly unrelated to whatever the person's doing, utterly unrelated maybe even to their family or their immediate environment, but there's somewhere, somebody out here, either because they're going to hear about it, 
They're going to read about it. They're going to hear eighth hand about it. Will be led to Christ because of this. So that's a, that's another reason. This is a testimony to unbelievers. Then we have 2 Corinthians 1 4, reason 8, and that's as a witness to believers that we may comfort them with a comfort wherewith we have been comforted. And it's talking about ministry to other believers. And you don't know why this particular thing has happened to you or happened in your life, but. You learn a lesson in it, and now you are able to have credibility with someone else in that situation. Good example of this. You know the lady that has fought CBS to keep uh, touched by an angel on the air? And Martha Williamson, I'm amazed at how she comes up with script after script, week after week on that program. And she's dealing with every issue in ordinary life. I mean, it's the only fresh air you can breathe on television that has some semblance to biblical theology. And she's had to fight like crazy to have that program not shut down by CBS. Well, she had a program which I didn't see. But the story was about abortion. And it was very done, apparently, very well, very wisely. Not preachy. And... People say, well, gee, how did she write that good script? How did she get that wonderful balance between, yes, it's a bad thing, but you don't go slamming the girl over the head with a baseball bat. That doesn't help. There has to be some compassion in here. There has to be wisdom and so on. And it was apparently very well done in a very balanced way. You know why? Because Martha Williamson had abortion earlier as a woman. Now, there's an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1-4. How could she speak with authenticity? Because she walked that road. And when somebody says, oh, well, there's no implications for the woman, huh? Martha can say, yes, there are. Don't tell me about there's no implications for the woman. I had an abortion. I know the implications. So, see how that comes across? It comes across with much more fire and authenticity and then from somebody, one of us out here, they're just blabbing words. So category eight suffering is important for testimony for the truth. Now we come to the, the hard one. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And that introduces the subject that we're getting into now, the angelic conflict. That says that we things occur in our life to reveal to the beady little eyes that are looking at us from the spiritual realm. While we sit here and talk about Scripture and Jesus Christ and salvation, there are eyes in the unseen realm watching us. And it's those eyes and the spirits of those eyes that are learning. And they're learning something not about us. We're jokes probably to them. But they're looking to see what God is doing through us. Ephesians chapter 3.20. Now, they're interested because of this angelic conflict. Now, let's look at Revelation. In all light of all that, let's go now to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now, this is during the tribulation. And the background is that believers have been violently persecuted during the tribulation. They have been assaulted. They have been killed by the hundreds of thousands. And so, in chapter 12 of Revelation, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Notice that. There is a hearing going on constantly over us and our sin before the holy, righteous God. Now, it's kind of good how this happened because we've just been through six weeks where the world has been run by a group of lawyers. 
There has been one legal argument after another legal argument after another legal argument over everything from dimples to some other substantive issues, such as the Constitution that occasionally should be mentioned here, you know, minor document. Well, all this constant nitpicking, 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 there's still 40-some lawsuits going, still. So it just never ends. There's constant appeal. There's a case, there's appeal, and a counter-appeal, and another appeal, and we're going to take it to another court, and we're going to move it over here to another court, and this and that, and all the rest. Constant arguments. Trying to sort out, theoretically, what is right. Okay? Now just for a moment, visualize all this in your head. Think of a bunch of yelling lawyers. You've all seen it on TV. Okay? It's a big courtroom scene. Transfer that imagery that you now have in your mind to this little phrase in verse 10, who accuses them before God day and night. What do we say Satan's name means? Prosecuting attorney. Prosecuting attorney. He is constantly trying to prosecute a case before God. He is saying, God is just, God is right, and there's something down here. Look at these people down here. They're fallen. They're minus are. They have unrighteousness. How can you let this go on? See what so-and-so did? Look at that. You're condemning me, God? Then look at this. And it goes on 24 hours a day. You talk about somebody talking about legal controversy. The legal controversy we've seen in the last five or six weeks is nothing compared to what's going on constantly since the fall. Day and night, day and night, Satan attacks, he accuses, he accuses, he accuses over and over and over and over again, constantly trying to seek a case. What case? Now, the Bible doesn't exactly tell us the details of the case, but it gives us the outline of the case. So let's move now to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Here's another example of persecution and accusation. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. Okay? Let's watch this, this narration. Then he showed me, this is Zechariah, being shown this prophetic vision of the throne of God. This is one of those rare times when a prophet was elevated by the Spirit to be able to see something we never can see, which is the throne of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, isn't this cute? Here we have a believer who is a high uh, in office in the nation Israel. He represents Israel. He's the high priest. So here he is standing before the angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So he's standing before the Son of God, Satan's standing at his right hand, and he's doing the same thing in this verse he's doing in Revelation chapter 12. Same thing, constantly accusing. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Look at the picture now. I won't go into what the Hebrew word filthy means. It'd be too shocking here in the church. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with clean or clear or festal robes. Here, they said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished or warned Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. Now look at this. 
Read it slowly. Look at that last clause. And I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Who are those who are standing here? Verse 1. So here, perfect redemption, and this is what so offends Satan, is that you can take a fallen human being, clothe him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we get to go into the throne of God, into the very presence of God, and walk where he can't walk, where he has to argue his case all the time. And here we are no better than he is. We've sinned just like he has. But for us, redemption has been promised. And we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing of our own merit. But this is the argument. So here we are again. Constant accusation. Constant attack. A constant legal attack. See what, why sometimes lawyers kind of get under your skin? There's a reason. Because they're a picture of Satan. Satan is one of the great attorneys. He is constantly, he's a brilliant attorney. He is constantly arguing and constantly trying to prosecute fallen men. Now let's go to, jo, judge, uh, to jo, uh, Job chapter 1. And we'll see if we can get through this tonight. In Job chapter 1, verse 8. Job chapter 1 and 2 are as sort of the introduction and orientation to why Job gets clobbered. Ultimately, one reason why Job gets ca ca caught is he's in category 9 suffering situation. And the author... ...summarize the content of verse 10. What's the theory? What's the argument behind Satan's position? You don't slap the hand and feed you. The only reason why Job obeys you, God, is because you're supplying his needs. If I supplied his needs, he'd be worshiping me. It's very simple. He just realizes his dependence on you and he's just going along with it. Not because he loves you. It's not because he has respect for you. It's because you're, you give him the handouts. Now, think about what Satan said to Eve in the garden. Remember when Eve heard Satan? And what was Satan's first word? Has God said? And then he followed it up. Remember what he followed it up with? Oh, he knows that in the day you eat there, oh, you're going to be as God's, knowing both good and evil. See, God has ill intent. The theory of Satan is that God, and here's the essence of it, God is not worthy of our devotion, of our trust, of our reliance. God is not worthy. He is not the just God He proclaims to be. He is not the loving God that He proclaims to be. That's why at the end of history, there are two passages in Revelation. Revelation 4, verse 11. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Revelation 4 is the great song. Worthy art thou, O God, because you have created us. And then in Revelation 5 is, Worthy are you, God, because you redeemed us. What, is the, what are those two hymns saying? You are worthy. What is Satan saying? You are not worthy. You are not worthy of respect. And if you cut off all this little special blessing, this guy's going to curse you. Watch it. So what does God do? Verse 11. Put forth your hand now, he's going to touch you. So, verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. In other words, don't take his life. You can take his possessions, don't touch his body. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord and then the first disaster clobbers Job. And verse 21, down at the bottom, is Job's response in faith to that first disaster. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. 
The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and through all this, Job did not sin, or did he blame God? So, Job was a solid character. Now watch this. Satan can't, can't let this go, see? They're like one of these lawyers now. Can't let it go. You've got to mess with it some more. So here he goes again. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Second meeting. And by the way, here's a proof that the word sons of God, the Benihai Elohim, means angels, not men. So when you see Benihai Elohim in Genesis 6, it means angels. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Notice, by the way, he has access to the throne room. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? I've come from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Okay? What did Peter say? Roaring lion, seeking may devour. If we don't think he's walking around this planet, we're crazy. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none on him in earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast. See, here's the Lord getting jabs at Satan. Notice Satan, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him. Notice, without cause. Category 9, type suffering. What is indirect, not related to something Job did. That suffering came into his life without a cause. That is, cause within his own life. Higher cause here in the angelic realm. And so, Satan has the theory. Skin for skin, all a man has, he'll give for his life. You put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. See, same theory. Go ahead and let him suffer some more and see if you get obedience out of this creature. Okay? We'll see, test this one out. And so we all know the story of Job. And we come down to the end, skipping all the way through the book of Job, and we get down to the end to the lessons that Job learned. We come to chapter 38. After all the counseling, after all the theories, after all the discussions, finally, in verse 1 of Job, chapter 38, the Lord answers. Now, notice something. When God answers at the end of the book, he doesn't talk about Satan. Because ultimately, Satan isn't the issue, is he? Who's, what's the issue here? Is God worthy or is God not worthy? That's the issue. That's the issue Satan has raised. So even though Satan raised it, that's the issue. So in Job chapter 38, that's the issue again. So the Lord said to Job, out of the world, and said, who is this that darkens counsel? by words without knowledge. So he challenged, we were there you know, two or three years ago, we commented about this. Here we are, emphasis on the essence of God. Get your eyes on me, says God. I am the creator, you are the creature. Now let's get the channel clear. Then you skip over to chapter 40, and the Lord says, and look at this, he says, will, you, will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer this. And Job responds that he's, he's I'm saying, never what can I reply? I lay my hand on my mouth. And the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? And look at this one. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Now what God is doing here is Satan has had a field day of putting all kinds of false ideas, aiming them at Job. So God, without mentioning Satan explicitly, is going to come in here and he's going to cut this stuff off. And he's going to cut it off by accusing, counter-accusing the groundswell of Satan's dialogue. Satan's dialogue is to make God as bad as possible to make him feel good. This is always the story. Small people always attack big people. This is why you have these little nitwit college professors. They're always running down George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or somebody that they can't even stand close to. You know, teaching at some 
silly level of salary because they can't get a job anywhere else. And they practice maligning great men and women to the impressionable college students. This is, they make a profession of this. And this is the same thing. Satan's same theme is, I am going to pull God down to my level. It makes me feel better. If I can smear his reputation, if I can accuse him, falsely or not, as long as I can smear his character, then we even the score. We bring him down to my level. And that's why God is answering that forthrightly. Are you going to condemn me? So he's saying this to Job. Because Job's vulnerable to this satanic idea. Are you going to condemn me that you may be justified? In other words, your standard of justice isn't going to be my character. It's going to be what you say. Man is going to determine this. And then finally, you come over to chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And Job admits that I have declared which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Here and now when I will speak, I will ask thee, and you do instruct me. I have heard with thee with the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Repent there meaning I totally change my fouled up view of what is going on in my life. He admits that I am totally screwed up here. So, this was a finesse, operation finesse that God did where he completely eliminated the satanic attack in Job's life. And, of course, Job responded, and the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I'll bet you there was another meeting. Next time Satan walked in, God said, Oh, been bothering Job again? What did you find out this time, mister? So, what is happening here? Well, let's get back to where we started. Satan is running an operation here, and we want to see it. His operation is to get the creatures in agreement with him that God is not worthy. Please notice that. The issue is doxological. Yes, redemption enters into it. But the primary issue is doxological. Is God worthy of praise or is he not? And that holds to the angels who are not redeemed as well as to the men who are redeemed. Redemption is lower down than doxological. That's the goal of history. Now we're going to, uh, after the holidays, we're going to move on to page 20 and 22, 21 and 22, and on page 21 and 22, you'll see two tables. Now, these tables are going to relate what we have learned about Jesus Christ last year and some of those doctrines that we stumbled on. Remember, we were talking about the doctrine of the hypostatic union or the doctrine of kenosis. And why did theologians come up with all that stuff? Well, there's a reason. Because those doctrines reveal certain things that Jesus did in the angelic conflict. And because Jesus Christ was God and man, and because, remember the doctrine of kenosis, Jesus Christ's second column in that table, Jesus Christ gave up the independent use of his divine attributes and accepted 100% creature existence during his mortal life, and during his mortal life, Satan had free shots. Matthew 4. Satan took shots at the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus, to defend against Satan, did not use any of his divine assets. He utilized everything as we would as believers. He identified completely with believers in that discussion. And then, and then when Jesus Christ is victorious, he gets promoted above Satan. Why could he get promoted above Satan? Why could he get into the throne room at the level that the Lord Jesus is? Because Satan tried to pull his little agenda on Jesus repeatedly down through the time of his life. And he failed. He failed at Matthew 4. He failed all during trying to incite religious riots against him and kill him. He failed there. At the crucifixion, he thought he had it made because he finally got to murder Jesus Christ, he thought. And he wound up undoing the whole legal foundation from under his case. 
So there's a tremendous story here about why the Lord Jesus Christ, during the four Gospels, did what he did. And now, seated at the Father's right hand, what he now enjoys. And what we should enjoy as a result of identification with him. And so all that's coming up, but we had to give the background of this horrible, spiritual, invisible war that has gone on since the fall of man. All around us, constantly, always involved in our life. And we'll, we'll tie, as I said, we'll tie this in with the person of Jesus as, when we come back from the holidays. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was victorious, that the Lord Jesus Christ withstood every satanic assault. He, re, he withstood every attack, every argument, every exact, uh, accusation that could possibly be directed toward a creature. And because he walked perfectly, because he walked with absolute righteousness, he became the savior of the world. And he now is at your right hand. And we thank you that we can worship your son and that we have a not only risen savior, we have an ascended and seated savior. Amen. Be open for some questions and discussion here for a few minutes anyway. Debbie's not here. We won't run out of questions. <laughs> yes, go ahead, Debbie. Uh, with uh, the, the, the place that prayer plays in all of this, um, you know, like if Satan is going before God to accuse the believers, and then if God allows him to touch the believers, um, to, to prove to Satan that they will still worship him. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, like, prayer, you know, where does prayer fit in, in all of this, and, like, what what part does it play? Because, like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just off the cuff saying that, you know, the friends that came to Job, I don't remember there being an incident where they prayed for Job. Where at the end, when Job prayed for his friends, that's when he seemed to be that God healed him. Mm-hmm. But it's just the position that prayer plays in all of us. Well, I think prayer plays a big role. The question is, where does, when this episode is going on in heaven, uh, and all these decrees are made, and who's going to attack who, uh, where's the role of prayer? Um, I think you see that in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because if you go into Matthew 4, uh, there it's clear that the Lord Jesus must have... He must have been praying in order to have the perception in the human side of Scripture that he did uh, and to be able to have that confidence to hold on to those promises. Because he was given a, a whale of a test there. And, and he held, he held fast, and he held firm. Um, we know that Jesus Christ prayed in the morning. I mean, it's obvious Jesus had a prayer life, very obvious. And so, since he was under attack, it's clear that prayer has a vital role to play. Um, I mean, we, we just have broached the topic tonight of just the, the broad outlines of the fact that A, there's an invisible war going on, and B, behind that, there's an agenda going on of who's right and who's just involved in that. So, prayer does play a role, and I think as we come into the New Testament more, you see that. You can't, as Peter says, defend yourself against the roaring lion unless you humble yourself before God, well, how do you do that? Prayer is an expression of that. So, yeah, prayer plays a vital role in it. Uh, it's not some case where, you know, it's all decided in the sense, well, it is decided before the throne room, but God's decisions always work out through things. And he works out through prayer. I mean, um, if he allows attacks against a believer and that believer responds prayerfully, that's an answer to Satan. Satan can observe this. 
So I didn't mean, I hope I didn't get the impression that I negated the human response. On the, on the pain. Well, I think one of the things that right away that you could argue for prayer is that part of prayer is worship. And what was Satan's original agenda? That he won't worship you when the pain comes. And so I think right away you've got a core right there of prayer, which is, a, which is worship, as C.S. Lewis said. Um, and so the the saint who is pinned down by enemy fire, so to speak, who maintains prayer, probably has a very good uh, case to shorten the duration because Satan loses. I mean, if the response causes adoration, is that, for, is that good for Satan or bad for Satan? And I think that kind of answers it. That if we fall apart, and don't pray, then if he's arguing this case, it kind of supports his case. And in that case of, of uh, Paul praying three times, I think that shows several... That's right. And it shows a lot because, first of all, it shows you that he didn't take the suffering line down. There's no, there's no justification in Scripture when, when you suffer that you have to be a doormat. You know, Paul got, out, got on it, the case, and started praying immediately. And the other thing that I think was interesting about that is that uh, when the Lord answered Paul and said... Uh, this is going to be for your spiritual growth. Actually, that defeats Satan too. Because God is revealing to Paul just a little tiny bit what he's doing in his life. So Paul, oh, okay. I, I got a clue now what's going on here. So in that case, the prayer helped in, in not necessarily diminishing the pain, but it encouraged him to see a little bit of what was going on here and he could take it better. Yes, ma'am. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, there's testimonies like that that you, you go through these hard times and you, you can emerge with a much, much greater sense of who God is and his, the, the veracity of his word. And, of course, that defeats it because the whole program that we get that Satan's doing here is to spread discord, is to spread doubt, is to tear down the character of our God and anything he can do to make his kingdom look good. And that's the battle. Well, our kind of time is kind of shot here tonight, but um, after the holidays, okay? After New Year's, we'll take it up again.